I've often likened uh, this particular sin um, to fire that has been taken out of a fireplace. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor that works. You know, a fire in a fireplace is a beautiful thing, wonderful thing, warm, gives light, it's aesthetically pleasing. It's a positive thing in its proper context, within its proper confines. It's a very good thing. But take those same beautiful, warm, uh, attractive, appealing logs and throw them into the middle of the living room. And that fire then becomes a very destructive thing. It's out of its proper context. It's, it's out of the, the parameters, the environment within which it was meant to operate. And it then uh, brings uh, down the whole structure uh, burning. And, and this is the way it is with uh, the seventh commandment. This is the way it is with physical intimacy between a man and a woman. In its proper context, it's a very positive thing. It's a wonderful thing. But outside of its proper context, then the proper context being the permanence and stability of marriage, of the commitment of one man to one woman for life, outside of that context, what is a very positive, uh, uh, indeed even enjoyable, pleasurable, uh, communion building, uh, relational uh, solidifying experience becomes a very destructive, damaging, destroying thing. The very same thing. It becomes the logs that are now burning in the middle of the floor and bringing down the building. And what the, the tragedy that we face in our day is that I, I think in many ways we live in the worst of all possible times when it comes to this. We live in an era of big media that is unprecedented, omnipotent, omnipresent media that is always, it seems, uh, it, it, blipping its image and its message into our environment, into our minds. We can't escape it. It's ever-present. It's on the television. It's in the movie house. It's on the radio. It's on the billboards. Everywhere we turn, there is this omnipresent big media that is constantly doing what? Inflaming the passions. Uh, if they can inflame the passions, they know that it's possible for them to sell products, sell programs, uh, sell... Uh, uh, advertising space, uh, using the sensual to, uh, to attract the eye uh, and to, 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 to uh, att attract uh, customers. C.S. Lewis used uh, what I thought was a, re a remarkable uh, image in one of his writings. I've not been able to dig it up, but I do remember it very clearly. Uh, and that was, he, he, he gave the example of going to a country somewhere, may have even been a another planet, and walking into a theater and seeing all of these people there, uh, all excited and shouting and screaming and uh, ravenous and drooling at their mouths and waiting for the curtains to part and for the show to begin. And uh, you come in on, in this, and, and there the, the curtains begin to part, and it opens up and there's a plate of food. And they jump up out of their sheet, seats and they're, they're screaming and they're hollering and they're carrying on and drooling and, and uh, just uh, whipped up into a frenzy, excited about, about uh, the, the, the meal that's been set before them that they're, that they're seeing with their eyes. Now, he, he asked the question then, what would you say about the appetite? The appetite for food amongst those people. You would have to say something is very, very wrong in this nation. There's some, something has been warped. Something has been twisted. 
something is uh, corrupt, something has gone very, very wrong, that there's this kind of fixation and excitement and the warping and distorting of life and its values and its meanings. If, if this is what people gather together to do and to see is a plate of food. Well, of course, the, the meaning of his, of his, uh, story there is obvious. This is what we have in this day. We have, we are in an, in a state of extremely uh, inflamed passions, misdirected, misguided, and bringing about a, an awful result. The 1960s revolution, if it feels good, do it. Um, I was around for that and uh, remember it well. Has been translated into the theme of most of our mass media today. That is, that one can have pleasure without consequences. And it's there in all of the shows and all of the songs and all of the movies and on all of the billboards. It's from everywhere from Forrest Gump uh, to the movie The American President. No consequences for your action. Without marriage, uh, without damage, without harm, without consequence. Never do you see the morning after and the broken heart of somebody who's been violated and been abandoned. You never see the crippling or killing disease, not just AIDS, but dozens, literally dozens of others that are destroying people's lives. Uh, you don't see the unwanted and unsupervised children. You don't see the one and a half million uh, victims of abortion and the seared consciences of one and a half million mothers who have gone through with the abortion. It's a very, very seductive image. But it's completely false. And uh, I... I uh, find myself so so angry at times. I understand why people want to go off to Montana, you know, and just cut off all the electricity. I tell you, I, I feel that urge. Uh, I too want to escape because we we are living in the midst of a culture that that at times I, I want to just sit down and contemplate how it is possible that we have become so unbelievably crude and vulgar and why it is tolerated by most, by most people. Help me understand some things. Why are Christian children sitting in front of the television watching network television hour after hour after hour? I'll tell you this much. We have tried to watch network television. We at least try every football season when Southern Cal's on. We try to watch the game. So we've tried. That's fairly harmless. Mid-Saturday afternoon. I find now we can't have the TV on for five minutes without something assaulting our values. Some preview of something, some advertisement that is portraying something that is immoral, that is wrong, that is destructive, that contains an image and an impression that seven and six and five and four and three and two-year-olds don't need to see. For that matter, neither, neither do their dad. Uh, why? Here's another one. Why are Christian children being allowed to go see PG movies? Uh, you might say, uh, well, our children go to PG movies all the time. But let me just tell you something. PG does not mean pretty good. It means parental guidance. When they put a 13 in front of it, 
It means parental guidance strongly urged. It means that, that there, there are things here that, that they, they believe. They with their diminutive consciences. They're with their non-existence, totally seared and scorched consciences, think might be offensive. I mean, I go to the G's with our children and I think, this is G. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that in front of my children. I wouldn't use that word. I don't want them thinking that's part of the common language or that, or, or, or that it's, it's, it's okay to, to treat adults and parents and authorities with the kind of irreverence and disrespect or to use that kind of crude language that they're using. PG means the parents are supposed to be guiding their children. It's not a license to let uh, children go and, 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 and see whatever's on, on the screen. I find you just about cannot escape the vulgar language, the off-color humor, and the disrespect for adults. And my question is, who needs it? And who wants it? We are uniquely vulnerable in this area that is uniquely destructive and in which our culture is uniquely inflaming the passions. And I wonder about adults too, about the apparent overconfidence. Are you stronger than David? Do you think that you can flirt and toy with these things when David proved that you cannot? For all we know, you know, for all we know, David conned himself into thinking, well, I'm just going to invite her over to talk. Or maybe he was really spiritual and said, we're going to have a time of prayer together. And then he closed the door. We're just going to have a little season of prayer for Uriah because he's off in the battle. We're going to pray for God. Come on over Bathsheba, we're going to have a time of prayer together. We're going to pray for Uriah. Don't uh, don't go down that street. Don't pick up the telephone. Don't go in that area. Don't even begin to, to flirt with temptation. The Proverbs have a, a, a number of, uh, of, of texts where these warnings are given in the strongest terms. So let's look at a couple of them together. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25. Here's the, the father's instructions to his child. Proverbs 4, 25, he says, Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Bad company corrupts good morals. The New Testament quotes with approval. Turn over to Proverbs 5, verses 8 and 9. Speaking of the adulteress, he says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest strangers be filled with your strength. And on he goes, about those in verse 12 who have hated instruction and whose hearts have spurned reproof. Verse 14, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. And then in chapter 7, most vividly of all, chapter 7 beginning at verse 6, there's a little story that he tells of, of, of one who 
slowly but surely finds himself being sucked into the place of temptation. He says, I, for at the window of my house I looked through my lattice and I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, pass, passing through the street near her corner. He takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the, in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. And she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, my colored linens with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh and oaths and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. See, there's the seductive image. For the man is not home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. And with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her, follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver. And as a bird hastens to the, to, the, to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. See, this is the counsel of the Proverbs. Yes, it's very seductive. It seems very alluring, very pleasurable. But remember the consequences of these things. Remember the destruction that will come upon you and upon your family and upon, if it becomes a matter of, of general and universal practice, upon your whole nation. This has a unique capacity to destroy. He does not know that it will cost him his own life. And so it will be for David and for his, and for his family. Stay away from these things. Flee from them. Remove them from you. You have to fight today to remain pure. You have to work at it. You have to want it. This is why Jesus said we must hunger and thirst after righteousness. You will not maintain righteousness if you are not longing for it and seeking it and preserving it. It won't endure. It won't last. It can't. There is too much that is attacking it in an omnipresent fashion from the world and from the flesh and from the devil to survive unless you are pursuing righteousness with all of your heart and removing from you whatever is contrary to it. Well, that's not what David did. He flirted with it. He brought her over. And uh, they ended up together. And now David learns that she is with child. And so the cover-up now begins. And one sin then leads to the next sin, the next sin, and the next sin. Cover-up is in verses 6-26. through 26. Oh, what tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Never better illustrated than right here in the life of David. David figures, well, I'll just bring Uriah home. And he'll then sleep with Bathsheba, and that'll be the end of it. And so let's pick it up at verse 6. 
Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. This is not a very flattering picture of David at all. Brings Uriah here, pretends he's interested in all these things. You know he's not interested in all. He's got one thing that he wants to do. He wants to get Uriah in the house. Then David said to Uriah, verse 8, Go down to your house and wash your feet. That may be a, a euphemism for physical intimacy. Go wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. See, further buttering him up. It's a, it's a cheap shot, really, trying to ingratiate uh, him. Uh, trying to further uh, enhance the sense of gratitude that Uriah has toward David for bringing him home. Sends a little present in addition. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Can you imagine the frustration of David at this? Not only did Uriah not go, but he slept apparently right out there in public at the door of, the, of David's house. It may be that Uriah suspects something is up and he's not going to have anything to do with it. I don't know. We'd be speculating to say. But this is a remarkable and providential turn of events on the part of Uriah. Verse 10, Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Uriah, why? And he said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey, why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. That's about as emphatic as you can be. And what I, what I think we have here is we have in Uriah a shadow of David's former self. Uriah is young David. You remember, David would not clip the edge of the garment of Saul. His, his conscience was so tender that he would not trim the... That he could not trim the edge of his garment without feeling guilty about it and confessing his sin to Saul. That's how, that's how sensitive his conscience was to wrongdoing at that point. And here is Joab, and he looks at the whole situation. He says, my king, there is Joab out there. There is Judah. There is Israel. There is the ark of God. There is your servants. I will not indulge my comfort and my pleasure while the rest are out there suffering. In other words, this had to prick David's conscience because in other words, what he, what, what he really is indirectly saying is, David, and why aren't you out there with them? Why are you not similarly enduring the same kind of, of uh, discomfort and self-denial? Why are you not turning away from pleasure? And you see, David had only, not only not uh, kept himself from the pleasures that he was due from his own household, but he had taken the wife of Uriah himself. Gone that additional corrupted step. 
in, in, in order to, to fulfill his own lust. And then in verse 12, David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow I will, uh, and I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. What's David doing there? David's trying to figure out what to do. I mean, David, by this point, is horrified. He's hoping something will happen that uh, will s- deliver him from the situation. But here's Uriah sleeping out where people can see him. Everybody knows he didn't go home. You know, if they didn't know before, they now know that whatever happened to Bathsheba, it wasn't Uriah. Because when Uriah came off of the battlefield, he slept out in the open. At least before, David might have been able to deny the whole thing and blame someone else and get them executed uh, for, the, for this sin. Get them in trouble for it. But now... Everybody knows. So we go on to verse 13. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So David then tries to get him drunk. And that fails. So David now, in verses 14 through 27, begins to scheme the murder of Uriah. He decides that the only way out of this is going to be to see that Uriah gets killed in battle and then he will marry Bathsheba and the Bathsheba will will bear his child legitimately. And hopefully that way no one will come to hear of the sin that he has committed. So it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle, and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the servants among David's, some of the people amongst David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath arises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? See, what Joab is anticipating here is that Joab did not completely abandon Uriah, but he sent others with him. And they gradually pulled back, but... Uh, They got too close. There was too much protection given to Uriah, and so others were killed in the process. And he's anticipating that David's going to be angry about that when the fact of the matter is David's not even going to notice. So if the king's wrath arises, verse 20, and says, why did you go near to the city to fight? Do you not know that, uh, did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down saying that this is David continuing to say, who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? That's back in Judges 7-9. through Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Joab does not appreciate what has happened. And that last line is saying, that's why people were killed, because you, David, plotted the murder of your servant, Uriah. So if you want to know why other men were killed, it was your fault. 
And Uriah, I mean, Billy Joab is, is uh, disgusted with what's happened. And disgusted with him being implicated in what's gone, gone, gone on. So the messengers departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messengers said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of your king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your, make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah the Hittite heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. Add it all up. David plans the murder of Uriah. He then sends the note by Uriah's own hand. In which David communicates to Joab that Uriah is to be murdered. He then draws Joab in as his accomplice. Events go in such a way that still others are killed. And his flippant response is to chalk it all up to chance. Sword devours one as well as another. That's the way things go in battle. Don't let it trouble you. Just uh, redouble your efforts. Attack more strongly the next time. Be encouraged. Go back at it again. There's no remorse for Uriah. No remorse for the others. Uh, no uh, remorse for anything that he's done. Bathsheba then mourns a period of seven days, which was typically the, the time of mourning. And then in verse 27, as was the case with Abigail, so others would think this was quite normal for David to marry a widow. Abigail was a widow also. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. One of the commentators refers to the quiet, terrible words with which the chapter ends. But the thing was evil. He says, in that but lies a whole world of meaning. He seems to have gotten away with it. But has he? No, no. Thing that David had done was evil. Nobody knows, save Joab, and Joab doesn't know exactly what's gone on. Nobody knows, but God knows. And God is not pleased. Ominous, ominous words. Let's notice some of these, some of what happens here. Notice the way that sin multiplies. One sin makes necessary 
another sin. One deception leads to yet another deception. One transgression of the law leads to the necessity of another transgression of the law. It's the way it always ends. Always is. Sin multiplies. One requires another, requires yet another, requires yet another, requires yet another. Notice also the way that sin corrupts. You ever heard it said about somebody? You might be aware of a situation where so-and-so was just this strong Christian, this happily married individual, and they changed so completely and they ended up abandoning their family and going off and having this affair and, uh, and, and, and everywhere people will say, he just, he just was a different person. I would never have imagined, imagined that, that he would have done such a thing. Well, you know, the reason why I think we say he's a different person is this. Because he is a different person. The person who did that was not the person you married. The person who did that was not the person you used to sit by in the pew. What happened is they fell into sin. And then that sin began to exert a corrupting influence on them. And one sin, like we were saying, led to another sin. One act of adultery is very, very difficult. But then the subsequent acts of adultery are not so difficult. The second, the third, the fourth, pretty soon a full-blown affair is going on. And so what was once a person of moral integrity and moral strength then becomes a person who in fact falls into sin quite easily and begins to excuse it and to rationalize it and to explain it away. And so when you say so-and-so is a different person, you're right. They are not the same person they were. They have changed. They are not what they were because sin exerts this corrupting influence. It changes us. You don't remain the same person. You don't remain unaffected. It poisons you. How is it that David, who would not trim, could not trim the edge of Saul's garment without feeling guilty about it, can commit adultery, deceive, murder, and all of that, and respond in such a flippant manner? Because David is no longer David. David's become someone else. The David that we loved in the chapters before, that we so admired for his zeal for God, for his zeal for the honor and the glory of his kingdom, he's not the same man anymore. And until God breaks him, uh, breaks him with his law and brings him to repentance, we will not see the same David. And then finally, But there's a lesson to be learned from this chapter, and we'll spend the rest of David's life tracing out this theme. No one gets away with it. David is so clever. He's using all of his mental, intellectual abilities to plot this thing. It's a a very clever thing he does. First, the adultery. Very clever. Well done, David. Sly. You know? You, you, You really are able to to uh, pull a thing off, you know? Nobody seemed to know. Then then it becomes obvious she's expecting. Well, bring him here. Get him drunk. Do whatever you have. Oh, that all fails? Well, what a clever idea. Put him up there in the front lines. Happens in battle all the time. Really won't be anybody's fault. Rationalize it. Figures, you know, this is not really murder. This thing just happens in battle. That's why he says what he says to them. Eh, it happens all the time. Battle consumes one as well as the other. Seems to get away with it. 
Nobody knows. Nobody really knows exactly what all happened and what led to it. There might be someone like Joab who could piece it together, but Joab's a subordinate. He's not going to say anything. David seems to get away with it. This is the way it is in this world. It seems like people get away with it. seems like perhaps we get away with it at times. We can go ahead and flaunt the law of God. We can break His commandments. And we seem to do so with impunity. Nothing happens. So-and-so, you, you may be aware of them. They've done this terrible thing. They've abandoned their family. They've run off. They've taken the money. They've done all these horrible, wicked things and they get away with it, it seems. Where's justice? Where's right? There's the family in poverty. The children are suffering. The wife is suffering. He's off having a good time. He seems to get away with it. Does he? Very quietly, very quietly we're told, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. God knows, and He is not pleased. And this is going to catch up with David. Your sin will find you out. And so, uh, while we teach without any hesitation, grace and forgiveness in Christ Jesus, and David's going to be forgiven. There are awesome temporal consequences. Consequences in this world that David will not escape. Because in this world, even with forgiveness, you've got to pay your traffic ticket. Hmm? You break the law, you pay the price. You reap what you sow. And David will be reaping destruction in this world. His soul will be saved. He will be picking up the pieces until the day he dies. Be warned. Don't get away with it in this world or in the next. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray, O oh Lord, that we would be, we would be forewarned that we might not repeat the mistake of David. And imagine that we can sin without consequence. Oh Lord, we pray. Purify our hearts. Keep us from sin. Sanctify Your people, O oh Lord, we pray. We pray that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness. We pray that we would love not the world nor the things of this world. Oh, we pray, Father, for our young people that they would not be seduced by the false images of our mass media. Oh, Lord, protect them and keep them from sin at a time in their lives when they are so very, very vulnerable. Preserve them and protect them and protect our homes and families and marriages through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.